Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Trisha Bobita. And I am Greta Johnson. And this week, we are talking all about sporks. Sporks? Well, sports, actually. One of my favorite things about you, Greta Johnson, is that once when you were live on the radio here at WBEZ, yep. you meant to say, and now we turn to sports. Yep. And you did. And I said sports. <laughs> yes. So, in honor of the Olympics this week, we're going to talk about sports balls. <laughs> <laughs> but really, there are very few balls involved. <laughs> That's true. And we don't normally talk about sports on Nerdette, but Nerdette is a show where we do talk to people about their obsessions. People who are scientists and poets, astronauts and adventurers, people who dare to ask big questions and explore the unknown. And, you know, to be an Olympian takes a high level of obsession. And the sports we're going to talk about today are super weird and interesting. Like oddly specific sports. Like being really good at these sports is pretty nerdy. Indeed. So the Olympics have begun. They are in South Korea. Trisha talked with two lady Olympians. We have a ski jumper and a loser, right? Yes. And we're going to talk about three things with them. Feminism, fear, and physics. The three F's of the Winter Olympics. But physics is a PH. Yeah, I know. But, you know, phonetics and all that. Phonetics is also a PH. Oh, good. (laughs) Let's start with 23-year-old ski jumper Sarah Hendrickson. Sarah Hendrickson, 2013 world champion, had realistic podium hopes in Sochi until she tore her ACL and MCL. She jumped anyway and finished 21st. Perfect landing. I think you have your winner right here. Sarah, that was you just a few weeks ago qualifying for the 2018 Winter Olympics. Let's go back to where you got your start, though. Tell me about the first moment when you're on skis that you remember thinking that you wanted to not just sort of do this casually, but you wanted to be the best at it. When did that sort of switch flip in your brain? Honestly, um, I always wanted to be better. Um, I didn't really compare myself to others for a long time. I just wanted to go on bigger hills and jump the farthest and personally grow every day. But I guess um, at the age of 10 was really when I kind of felt like I might have a future in this. Obviously, there wasn't a huge future for women ski jumping at the time, but I just had so much passion for it that I just wanted to keep doing it. And for me, I always just wanted more. I wanted to fly more. I wanted to compete more and I wanted to be better. And then um, that eventually turned into I want to be the best in the world. We talk a lot on your dad about the importance of representation, whether it's seeing people like you in science or in business or in sports. And you mentioned that it didn't seem like when you were a kid, there was a future for you in this particular sport. Can you let folks know why that is? Yeah, so men's ski jumping has been included since the very first Olympics in 1924, um, but not until 2014 did women's ski jumpers finally get added as an Olympic event. And without the Olympics and medal potential, it's really hard to have a successful um, international level of sport. Of course, um, you know, without the Olympics, there's very few sponsors, there's not World Cups. So um, when we finally got added in 2011, that we would have an event in 2000. 
2014. Um, that's when the sport really, really took off. It's been a long battle for the women, but finally included in the Olympic program. And Jeff, perfect weather conditions for tonight's final. Um, when I first started ski jumping in 2002, I watched the men's event in my backyard in Park City, Utah, and. You know, it didn't really dawn on me that women weren't competing. I mean, I noted it, but it didn't really connect. So I just kept ski jumping because I loved it and I had passion for it. And I think that's why female ski jumpers are kind of really unique is just because we didn't have any other drives to keep us training. There was no drive for money or fame or sponsors or anything like that. It was purely you were on the ski jump because you loved it. Can you explain to folks why it took so long? I mean, what was going on? What's the deal? Yeah, um, you know, that's a that's the golden question, and I still don't really know the answer. But men's ski jumping was a very traditional male sport, and it takes a lot of time to break out of tradition. And I don't think they really wanted females to, um, you know, take anything away from the men. And, of course, I don't want to either. I just I fell in love with this amazing sport and just want a chance to compete against other females. Um, so, I mean, there were some people that said it was medical reasons. And the best women in the sport say they're only being excluded from Olympic competition because of bias. That case being helped along by guys like this guy, uh, the president of the International Ski Federation, heard here speaking in 2005. Don't forget, it's like jumping down from, let's say, about two meters on the ground about a thousand times a year, which seemed not to be appropriate for ladies uh, from a medical point of view. Because, you know... Lady parts can't handle the jumping the way that man parts can. Yeah. Although, as I said, it's actually a relatively safe sport. It's a very technical sport. So we obviously take more speed than the men so that we can jump the same distances. But from a spectator's point of view, it can look like a, a female is um, comparable to a male, which I think kind of scares people away. And again, I never want to take anything away from the men. I just want the opportunity for myself to be on the world stage. And you have it now. How did it feel to see that decision get made? Like, were people waiting for a decision? Did somebody call you? How did you find out that it was happening? It was a it was a long time in the making. I had older teammates that fought for a long time, and I thanked them a million times for what they did. And um, they actually went to court to try and get into the 2010 Olympics because it was a matter of discrimination. They were using public money to build the jumps in Vancouver, and they weren't letting females um, compete. But unfortunately, um, they lost uh, getting into those games. A sport must be widely practiced around the world. This is not the case for women's ski jumping. Um, And then in 2011, we got that call. We were um, listening to the vote on a conference call with all my teammates and it was early in the morning because they were on Europe time and um, yeah we all just sat around a phone and listened that we would finally have a chance and I think it's more a sense of relief more than anything especially for my older teammates they really just wanted to be an athlete and then had been thrown into this political battle so it's it's a really hard um, dynamic to be in. I'm just trying to think of what it would feel like to your point of there wasn't the hypothetical medal out there before and then the first time you head back out to jump now you're training for the olympics potentially did it feel different did it change how the sport feels to you yeah i think there is a little bit of that um 
I would put in towards feeling a little bit more purpose. You know, when people see you traveling like in the airport or something and they ask, you know, what that huge ski bag is and you tell them you're a ski jumper and then they would ask like, oh, are you training for the Olympics? And before that day, you had to explain to them that what you do isn't in the Olympics just because you're female. So finally, it was that relief that you could just smile and know that, yeah, I'm training for the Olympics. Like this is now a possibility. Do you think that going through this particular political fight so up close when it came to making it so that women could compete in this sport, does it shape how you think about any other issues where you see that kind of imbalance or inequality? Um, you know, I <laughs> I, I definitely have a, a new appreciation for how hard it is to change things in a sense. Um, you know, I wasn't a huge part of the political fight. My teammates that are about eight to 10 years older than me really paved the way for that. Um, I was really a perfect age for um, being included in the first Olympics and, and World Cups and stuff like that. But of course, I want everything to be equal. But, you know, I have this sense of appreciation that it takes time and it takes a lot. And um, of course, I want, every, you know, I want females to have all the same opportunities. But, you know, getting mad and, and, you know, saying bad words or being mean to people that are supposedly in control of those things um, doesn't really get you that far. So, yeah, I just have this appreciation that um, you know, the fight is hard. It's hard to make changes. And um, but then again, you can make changes. I mean, voices are loud and you stand together and you can break down barriers. So it's, it's a balance that I guess I've learned between those two. So the men have three events for this sport in the Olympics and the women only have one. What's the deal with that? Yeah, we like to say we have our foot in the door. Um, there's definitely a long way to go for women to be equal in the sport of ski jumping. I think we, they still want to see a little bit more growth in the sport. Um, we have some competitions on large hills, and I train on large hills all the time. I love them. Um, I love large hills more than small hills. Um, but I think we're going to have to wait a couple more years in order to get that added. And in other aspects, too, a, a World Cup win for females is $3,000, and for men it's $10,000. So we're at 30% of you know, what the men are making. So that's pretty frustrating as well and we have less competitions too so um, we're very thankful that we're in the Olympics but there's still a long way to go in terms of equality Trisha can I tell you my favorite part of this interview yes please it was when she said she likes big hills better than small hills yeah me too I thought that was awesome yeah she's pretty awesome I'm excited to watch her compete Though it's funny because I feel like you and I are both the sorts of people who don't actually pursue high-speed activities. Or wheels or inclines. Yeah, I you, like flat yeah, ground. Yeah. I like the Midwest. Yep. I like flat ground. I like warm tea and a good book <laughs> and internet. Yes, that is more our speed. <laughs> Sarah Hendrickson's speed is up to 60 miles an hour. Literally. And she flies through the air for the distance of basically one and a half football fields. One and a half football fields in the air. Yeah, that's like, I can't even fathom how terrifying and insane that is. So we asked her, is ski jump a frightening sport to her? I never had fear. Like, I was never nervous about going to a larger hill. I always thrived off of that. And I think to be successful in a sport like ski jumping is you can't have that fear. Is she a superhero or insane? I mean, I think bravery and stupidity are closely related. <laughs> it's in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> 
Next up, we're going to talk to a doctor who will explain why Sarah thinks ski jump is a good idea, <laughs> and I would not do it if you paid me $1 million. <laughs> really? A million bucks? I might do it for a million dollars. I would die, so a million dollars <laughs> is not worth death. I mean, if there were like a real squishy ground, I think I might do it for a million bucks. I ain't doing but it. I'm scared of even saying that out loud now. See? <laughs> We're going to talk about fear in just a minute. Some vindictive millionaire is going to come up with the bucks. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Jane Joseph is a professor of neurosciences at the Medical University of South Carolina. But around the office, we've been calling her the fear doctor. Jane, would you ever ski jump? Not certainly in my current state of being elderly. Uh (laughs) Jane is one of the first people to ever perform functional MRIs specifically on what are called high sensation seekers. That's a term for risk takers drawn to freaky experiences. And who is the riskiest risk taker of them all? Alex Honnold. He's a 26-year-old rock climber from Sacramento, California. But not just any rock climber. He scales walls higher than the Empire State Building, and he does it without any ropes or protection. It's a kind of climbing called free soloing, and the penalty for error is certain death. Alex Honnold is a free solo rock climber famous for scaling insane cliffs without ropes. And Jane took pictures of his brain. Because why is he doing this? It's so scary. <laughs> I can barely watch those videos of him doing that, so. <laughs> Here, Alex Honnold is 2,600 feet above the Yosemite Valley floor, trying to haul himself up the slippery granite wall of Sentinel. This makes me nervous in the way that when I watch my nephews climb everything, oh, like little American Ninja Warriors, yep. I get really nervous. <laughs> and I don't even know Alex. <laughs> I'm scared for him. I'm just watching him. I'm not even related to that guy. We did, as you said, um, have the opportunity to scan Alex while he was doing a couple different things in our MRI scanner. So Jane puts Alex in the MRI machine so that she can take these pictures of his brain while she's showing him a mix of images. And some of them are images of things that would scare most of us, probably you and I. You know, depictions of violence, a gun pointed straight at the camera, a toilet that hadn't been flushed for, like, months. It's some really powerfully disgusting stuff. And some of them are kind of boring. Those are the controls. So, like, spiders and cows in extreme sports. You can decide which of those are boring and exciting. (laughs) All of us have sort of these associations and memories that are very potent, and they're going to signal these threats to us. And they're going to be slightly different for every person. If you show, you know, a person who has a true sort of pathological fear of snakes, something that looks even slightly snake-like, the amygdala is going to respond very vigorously. Even though you know it's maybe just a picture, but this is such an ingrained association 
um, for some people that that's going to really quickly trigger a response. The amygdala is often called the brain's fear center because it helps you decide whether to run away or fight. You know, it's kind of signaling to the body or really to the brain, you have to do something right now. So what happens in Alex's brain? He viewed these images, um, was pretty nonplussed by them, Mm -hmm. (laughs) both in terms of his response afterwards and basically showing no amygdala response. We just didn't have enough off-the-chart stimuli that could have done anything for his amygdala. Yeah. Jane told me that even compared to her control subjects... Alex is unique. Her control subject in this case was even another male who likes rock climbing. Right. So they like extreme sports. They do these things. But when they look at the images, their brain lights up like the Las Vegas Strip. Alex's brain? Not so much. All's quiet. He has an amygdala. But when he looks at these images, nothing happens. You know, he kind of has a a base level of arousal, if you will, that is just very different from, say, the average individual. Dr. Jane has been studying and studying Alex Honnold's brain and all sorts of brains of thrill seekers because she wants to better understand fear. And so I asked her what she thought of the fact that these Olympians do similar risk-taking behaviors, but because she's a very good doctor, she did not want to (laughs) diagnose from afar any of the athletes we talked to for this episode. But she did have a few big ideas about what makes some of us drawn to fear or flee when we face those situations that I think are pretty cool. Yeah, and they're all super interesting. The first one has to do with the idea of dopamine, right, which is a neurotransmitter. This is what helps you sense pleasure in a lot of ways. The theory is that maybe risk takers just have a really low setting for dopamine, like they just need more crazy activity to experience pleasure. Yeah, an example might be for some people eating a jalapeno, not so spicy, and so they need that crazy oh, ghost yeah, pepper. Totally. Exactly. And they're like, mmm, delicious. And for some of us, we taste jalapeno juice in something and we run away. <laughs> so like the spiciness is the dopamine. Totally. Totally. The idea is that if they have kind of lower levels of this naturally, they will seek out activities that are pretty much going to increase their levels of dopamine so that they can actually experience some kind of rewarding situation or feel you know, some sort of pleasurable, positive response. Another theory, which I think is my favorite, actually, has to do with the term neuroticism. Yeah. So, like, who's neurotic? You and me a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Many of us are nerds. Nerds are often neurotic. We think of neuroticism. What's the deal with? (laughs) That was my Jerry Seinfeld. (laughs) We think of neuroticism as people like Jerry Seinfeld, who are just, like, a little bit quirky. But it turns out that neuroticism at its base level is actually a survival instinct, right? Because it's like, oh, wait, maybe I shouldn't go flying over this hill. Careful people maybe live longer. Who knows? Exactly. And there's one other thing that Dr. Jane found when she studied Alex Honnold's brain that is really cool. And that is that he scores super high on the conscientious meter. Conscientious like thinking about other people? Conscientious like being careful, being thoughtful. Mm, Okay. So my dad always had a saying, which was creep, crawl, walk, run. Oh, sure. Yeah. Right. You, we you maybe can't heard run this. unless you're creeping. <laughs> yeah. you got to learn things in steps. You have to have the patience and the judgment to do no matter what it is in the steps that are 
comfortable for you. And that's what we heard from these athletes in part too, right? Is like you don't start on the big hill. Yeah. You start on the small hill. Well, and that is super interesting, especially given how much these guys love taking risks because they are still very highly calculated. Calculated with physics and science. (laughs) That's what makes Alex Honnold able to do what he does. And not fall down. The careful thing is interesting because I feel like stereotypically you think about these risk takers, you you think about people who are impulsive, who are seeking really crazy experiences. Yeah, but under that, we talk to these folks all the time, these adventurers, people who launch themselves into space or who shoot themselves into the air on skis or who do things like Alex Honnold and free climb mountains. They're actually very careful and very studious and really good nerds. And that is why they survive. <laughs> They still seem nuts to me. (laughs) We typically don't see the conscientiousness as high in these high sensation seekers. But I will say that I kind of think of these personality traits as like dials that we can turn up and down. And everyone has different settings across all of these traits. can see why Dr. Jane has so much fun studying these people. Oh, for sure. And actually, I suggested to her that maybe she add another weird element into her experiments. <laughs> I'm sure you did. So here's what I wanted her to do. <laughs> Put the smell of chocolate chip cookies and or somebody's favorite song in the same room with the MRI machine and the scary pictures. Because the Olympic athletes we talked to told us that part of why they're not afraid is they trust their coaches. So I wondered if we could get some sort of sense memory that makes people feel trust and warmth and coziness, and if that changes the way our brains react to fear. That's really lovely. You know what I was going to recommend? What? If you are interested in learning more about the amygdala's fear response, Mm -hmm. is just Google cat videos of cats and cucumbers. Oh, yeah. What's that all about? Well, apparently cats think cucumbers are snakes, and so they get real scared. (laughs) And there's just a lot of really good YouTube videos about it. I feel like this is rude to do to a cat. Yeah, I mean, we both tried with my cat. That's true. But your cat's a jerk, so I didn't feel bad about it. He's not afraid of anything. No, he's not. (laughs) In a minute, we talk about another freaky Winter Olympic sport, luge. We break down the physics of a medal-winning luge run with a four-time Olympian. Okay, let's go back in time. It's 2014. We're in Sochi, Russia. If support is all she needs, she's got it. A ton of support. Erin Hamlin is at the top of what is basically a giant frozen water slide. Team USA's Erin Hamlin has powered her way down the mountain three times to be sitting in position three with one round to go. A good run right now, and she could win the United States its first ever medal in what is normally a German-dominated event, the luge. I definitely never had this preconceived plan or idea to be a luge athlete. That's Erin. I'm sure I was exposed to it in a tiny way somehow, but never in a million years could you have said to me, someday you'll be doing this, and blah, 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 and I would have not believed you. Remember, Team USA has never won a singles luge medal. There are some days, too, where I I remember sitting at the top of the track, and I would just talk myself into it, like, my coaches clearly think I can do this, or they wouldn't let me, so I can do it, and I'm just going to go, and... It'll be okay. She's sitting on her sled, feet out in front of her, hands on the poles that will help launch her to a start. At the very start of the race, she really is an object to rest. That's Louis A. Bloomfield, professor of physics at the University of Virginia. And she would stay that way if nothing pushed her. Aaron's holding onto two bars, rocking back and forth, and releases to start the race. Holding those poles, she 
pulls back on them and they react by pulling forward on her. That's Newton's third law. So she needs everything to push her forward. Get on my sled, the light will go green. I'll put my face shield down and just kind of take a deep breath and, and then pull off the handles. This young lady from Remsen, New York, can make it happen right now. Now Erin scrapes and paddles the ice using spiked gloves to pull herself up to speed. Once she releases those poles, she's got nothing pulling her forward. So she has to get something else. So she uses her gloves to grab the ice and pull it backward. So the ice pulls her forward. There's an imaginary ideal line that's all the way down the track, kind of based on pretty much basic physics that's going to be the fastest way down. And we're trying to stay within an inch of that. Straight down the ramp, no issues, clean settle into the sled. Here we go. Now Aaron lays flat to get in the most aerodynamic position possible. While she's going slowly during the start, aerodynamic forces are kind of unimportant. But once she's picking up speed and going fast, she's encountering a lot of air. And the more air she pushes on and the harder she pushes on it, the more it slows her down. So she's got to basically try to interact with as little air as she can possibly do. As we're on our backs, going feet first, trying not to look, the most aerodynamic position is with our heads back pretty far. Keep your eyes on the numbers. If they stay green, she's going to the podium. Now she is really barreling down this track. The speed that she runs at is basically the optimized speed where the forward forces on her, which are due to gravity and the slope of the hill, are balanced by the uphill forces, which are pretty much air resistance and a little bit of friction. And we're using our legs. Um, we have small handles kind of inside. And then also any shifting of our body weight or pressing in with our shoulders also steers the sled. Um, and we're just trying to remain as relaxed as possible while doing all that, which is, is pretty counterintuitive. She looks just as calm as ever. There's a tremendous amount of pressure on this slider. But when she hits the turn, She's got to change the direction of her travel. That is a change in velocity. I mean, it's all over the board, depending on what corner you're in where, um, what happens next. It's either a hard steer or a light steer. Well, those forces can be huge, and the accelerations that result from them can also be huge. So she's accelerating several times as fast as a falling object. She's almost at 83 miles an hour, and she is on the podium! It's a medal for Team USA! Hamlin has done it! What an amazing race from Hamlin! Just flawless! The very split-second first reaction sometimes is like a like an exhale, like a relief, because it's like, okay, I made it down, it was good. Then there's days where you come down and you just know, like you get that feeling where, oh my gosh, that was on. She has delivered the United States of America an Olympic Winter Games lose singles medal. Well, Aaron, your thoughts on the history you've just made for Team USA? You know, it's amazing. I It's surreal, really. Um, I came into this with no expectations, and this is beyond what I could have hoped for. Aaron, congratulations. Thank you very much. This is why the Olympics are cool, man. This is why they're cool. Yeah, for sure. You're watching somebody not be afraid of something that you would totally be afraid of. Yep, totally. That's exciting yep. and fun. Yep. You're watching somebody be a master of physics. Like, literally fly. Yeah, it's crazy. And there's a whole lot of feminism going on up in here and i like it <laughs> i like it i think we should call it a bunch of wins yeah remember you can watch our new nerdette friends sarah hendrickson and aaron hamlin in this year's winter olympics 
This show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson, along with Justin Bull. Our executive producer is Brendan Banizak, and our intern is Stefania Gomez. Special thanks this week to Dr. Jane Joseph of the Medical University of South Carolina and Professor Lou Bloomfield of the University of Virginia. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on NPR One, or listen in the WBEZ app. It's really helpful if you leave us some stars there in Apple Podcasts. Thanks to Mrs. Funster for the oh, nice review. Mrs. Funster. Also, Carla Fafries. Hmm. I may have added some of Fafries. Car- Carla Fries? Mrs. Funster is fry fun. related? I think they're both fun because French fries. You can find <laughs> you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Nerdette Podcast. And we have a newsletter. Indeed. I think I'm going to put a link to some really delicious cookies in there today. So get ready, guys. Find a link to subscribe to that newsletter at nerdatpodcast.com. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Gold medals for all. We're all winners here, Trisha Bobita. That's an awfully millennial point of view. <laughs> Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.